Hey, this is Harpo the Healer. Welcome to the Harping with Harpo series. This is the 27th podcast and it's a supplement to Harpo the Healer on YouTube. Don't forget, have a look at all other episodes and you'll note some are loosely based around the blues, of course, and blues harmonica, however, uh, not rooted and explore many interesting avenues covering some famous and solved mysteries with in-depth analysis. While if not on a musical area of interest, cover some great feats of human endeavour and dig into the human condition. With the latter in mind, today I'm a solo talking head and going to delve into the clandestine world of spying, in particular the Special Operations Executive from World War II. What it takes to become such a spy, pushing one's nerve to the absolute limit and at the same time having excellent physical conditioning coupled with a razor-sharp brain. So, as I'm sure everybody is aware, the uh, Second World War was between 1939-1945. Um, a lot of contributing factors and other wars and uh, things of uh, different natures that contributed to the Second World War, but as far as Britain was concerned, it uh, eventually ignited because uh, it was reacting to the Nazi invasion of Poland, and that's why uh, Britain entered the war. Um, would you believe it dragged on six bloody years until the Allies finally defeated Nazi Germany and Japan in 1945? Well, in the early part of the war, Britain had the uh, incredible evacuation, but uh, terrible catastrophe from the expeditionary force getting out of Dunkirk. And then, of course, uh, had the Battle of Britain fighting the German Luftwaffe with the incredible pilots, but the, the stoicism of uh, everybody civilians, everybody, to, to fight off uh, the Nazi invasion. And uh, then in the early years, we, uh, even in the Middle East, we, we weren't winning any battles. And that was a major concern. We were having a, a real torrid time of it, really until um, the, the general was replaced with uh, Montgomery, who went out to the Middle East. And certainly we were turning the tables. He was out there by 42 and we were turning the tables certainly by 43. So certainly within the first year of the war, Churchill needed and demanded a subversive war, a clandestine secretive war. He realized he simply had to have this, a war of uh, sabotage and subversion, where basically, you know, nothing, nothing is off limits. By July 1940, the Special Operations Executive was uh, founded and it was a secret British World War II organisation, originally officially formed on the 22nd of July 1940, <laughs> under the Minister of Economic Affairs, Hugh Dalton, from the amalgamation of three uh, existing uh, secret organisations. Well, its purpose, of course, uh, conduct uh, sabotage, espionage, reconnaissance in occupied Europe. Now, later, it was used in occupied Southeast Asia, but I'm not really going to concentrate on that. I'm going to concentrate on the, uh, the European situation. But, uh, of course, the one in Asia was against Axis powers and to aid local resistance movements. Now, the problem with Dalton was that he was a socialist minister. No, it wasn't a problem for him, of course, but uh, I guess it was a problem for Churchill because they didn't get on. That was the problem. And uh, Dalton had uh, literally no help from Churchill at all as he uh, was putting it together. And Dalton thought it's no good placing these people precariously into these areas without being properly trained and all the rest of it. And he thought um, they should use black propaganda. Uh, now let me just explain what that is. Black propaganda creates the idea it was made by those it was supposed to um, discredit. And then there's white propaganda that does not disguise its origins and uh, the other one is grey propaganda, which is to not identify its source. So early attempts at dropping SOE agents into occupied uh, France went disastrously wrong. My guess is, I think, that uh, Dalton had been appointed as a socialist to kind of marry things up. You remember, you know, in 1940, um, Churchill had been uh, put in charge, you know, he was now prime minister kind of thing, and he'd even uh, made a new post for himself and he made himself Minister of Defence, so uh, amongst other things that he kept doing. So um, 
I guess it was trying to create the balance within the coalition kind of government to, to fight the war with. The first ever uh, agents, SOE agents, dropped uh, behind uh, into occupied France. Most were captured, however, some did manage to escape. For example, with a sympathetic French guard who duplicated a prison key and uh, they managed to get away. But many in Whitehall were very unhappy with the current state of uh, the Special Operations Executive, SOE, and Dalton was replaced by a Tory, would you believe, and a very good friend of uh, Churchill's, Lord Selborne. Now, Selborne had to prove its existence and prove it could be a useful organisation. Otherwise, it was definitely going to be shut down. So, the Special Operations Executive SOE, as I said, it was a secret British World War II organisation. And uh, it did have uh, developed some nicknames. Uh, the Baker Street Irregulars was one because that's where its uh, command centre was on Baker Street. Uh, Churchill's Secret Army, I guess, was another. But of course, very few people knew about this at all. And the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, ungentlemanly warfare, I could not say that, can I? Uh, was another. And um, notable commanders in Frank Nelson, uh, Charles uh, Jocelyn Hambro and Colin Gubbins but uh, I'm not going to dwell too much on the structure at the moment um, more, I'm more interested in uh, the human condition and the types of people have uh, went about doing these things but uh, of course under the new uh, jurisdiction of um, Lord Selborne what was happening was uh, they were going to get a proper training structure together and uh, a lot of the uh, teaching was originally done in Guildford, a lot in classroom based and things like that. And then they went in more specialist training, mainly in country houses, for example, up in Scotland, where they did more specialised training. When you're recruiting people for this kind of work, invariably it's not really people who, well, they volunteer after you've been approached for to take on this kind of role, usually. And it seems to me it's kind of on a par with the sort of... Uh, bomb disposal engineer, um, sort of bomb disposal, they tend to be people who have been watched for a while and then their approach that perhaps this would be something that they might likely be good at. In other words, other people see the qualities in you, you tend not to be seeing the qualities in yourself first. Yes, of course, once these things have been brought to your attention, people will volunteer for them and all the rest of it, but uh, invariably they're looking for certain characteristics and uh, in SOE, I mean, the, uh, the qualities are quite remarkable in that sense. So I suppose the next question is, what sort of people are they looking for? Well, clearly they're looking for people that, for example, could speak fluent French. Perhaps, um, you know, they are French who have got a good command, of, uh, good command of English, of course. And, of course, being in France, you would, uh, in, in some quarters... Uh, it doesn't really matter about accents because the Germans wouldn't kind of recognize that in your French. Unfortunately, perhaps the French speaking people would. So there's, uh, you know, possibilities there. Same uh, in Norway with dropping agents into Norway, uh, having, uh, you know, having been, been bilingual uh, certainly is um, a characteristic that they, uh, you'd be looking for. And secondly, clearly people with courage, huge amounts of courage, and then you know, intelligence, in other words, their ability to adapt and learn the new skills on training because they need to be trained in uh, special types of radio operative and Morse code, navigation, um, unarmed combat, all these sort of things that uh, the ladies and the men would be, would be trained in. So they're quite unique individuals. It's not that they can't be trained, but they're, they're looking for specific uh, types. And particularly the, the language is, is key in a lot of these um, these things and one would imagine if you've got a, a working knowledge of German or understanding of German even if you, you're not going to be speaking it because it's uh, you've got quite a strong accent but at least understanding it could be uh, obviously be an advantage. The initial training took place at Wanbra Manor that was the place in Guildford after which the uh, recruits would disperse and be sent to different um, specialised training centres around the country located in country houses which um, the war office had got specially for the purpose and requisition, requisition them excuse me and then a further month and a bit perhaps 
of training, maybe five or six weeks specialist training at one of these particular centres. And, you know, it was a huge benefit to have these Scottish country houses. And uh, one, the, probably the most famous one, was uh, Airsig House, if I've pronounced that correctly. It lies two miles south east of the village of Airsig in Lockerbair and is located to the south of the A830 road, part of the road to the Isles of the Historic Route, which connects the town of Fort William to the port of Malague. Now these uh, country houses were great because they, with the grounds that they have and the, the land that's available is perfect for training field craft and all the rest of it, assault courses that they could build, shooting targets with handguns and all that sort of stuff. And uh, this is what I'm going to come on to now with two key characters in uh, training. Oh, also to note that um, when the, um, the trainees uh, were first um, recruited, they would be given the rank of, I think, second lieutenant or lieutenant. It's one of the two. But they're given officer status anyway. Obviously, they wouldn't all pass the training, but they needed to try and get as many people through as possible. And, um, and once they're into specialised training, of course, they're going to learn how to um, sabotage and deal with uh, explosives and all that kind of stuff. They'll be given small models and cognitive tests to see how, and how quick they can retain in the front cortex of the brain and retain things or use cognitive actions to, uh, to build these type of models. They're taught to see what their initiative levels are like, how, how doing tasks um, to check their initiative. And of course, uh, radio, learning to uh, do Morse, Morse code, learn to send messages, receive them, of course. And uh, navigation, doing a lot of navigation. And physical fitness, where the young ladies and the young men would be uh, on a series of cross-country runs, assault courses, all that sort of stuff, trying to get them as fit as they possibly can before they go. I mean, some of them may well be behind enemy lines for several days. Some might be for months and some might even be for years depending on what their mission was. They were all uh, taught and trained to parachute because that was nearly always the way they were going to get uh, dropped in at night usually um, over the target area into France for example. So they were all trained in uh, parachuting uh, which I guess you know 1940s relatively new thing isn't it? Now I mentioned these two key characters for specialist training. I think they were mainly up in Scotland but they were they were key to the whole thing and a lot of design of what um, these people needed to, to learn were attributed to these two gentlemen. William E. Fairburn, who, uh, well he ended up being a lieutenant colonel eventually, he was, um, and another guy called Eric A. Sykes. And these two are absolutely fascinating. Now Fairburn had served in the Royal Marines Light Infantry in 1901 and then he joined the uh, Shanghai um, Municipal Police SMP in 1907 and then he'd served with them and then he'd, he'd, he'd got more experience and then he'd uh, by World War II he was recruited by the British Special Operations Executive as an army officer for training and he was a specialist in uh, close quarter combat with uh, another close quarter combat instructor Eric Sykes that I've just mentioned. Fairburn was commissioned in 1941 and Fairburn and Sykes were both commissioned as second lieutenants I believe and he was training British American and Canadian commandos and other allied commandos as well. Fairburn and his close friend Sykes were masters in their field close quarter combat training, field craft and all the rest of it. They used uh, traditional styles of fighting but combined it with martial arts with uh, many different experiences. The pair became very well known and um, probably the lasting impression that uh, people had on them was for their designing of a military commando knife for World War II. A knife which was slightly lighter than say a Bowie knife type um, currently used by the military around the world albeit just under the seven inches long and it was balanced at the hilt unlike the sort of Bowie style knife or uh, it became known as the um, Fairburn Sykes commando knife and it was specially designed for close quarter killing weapon but little else. It, uh, it didn't suffice as a general purpose instrument and probably that's the reason why the American Marines didn't go for it because uh, they had um, their version of a Bowie knife, I think they, they called it a, a K-bar 
that's the marine knife uh, for World War II and beyond and it's a, it's a similar sort of thing like a bowie knife but of course uh, K-Bar comes from years uh, before that I think uh, some reference to uh, kill bear I think so um, you know for gutting and all the rest of it in uh, with animals of course the Fairburn Sykes combat knife with its uh, slightly thinner blade and the emphasis on the point was specifically designed for killing human beings and in fact one of the combat training things that they used to give for commandos was if they were uh, walking towards somebody where there was unarmed combat that uh, because of the balance of the hilt which was so important on this design of the knife that the uh, commando would probably uh, move the knife slowly from one hand to another so that the uh, adversary wouldn't know which hand he was going to use to use the knife so there were all these idiosyncrasy things that they'd, uh, they'd thought about in the design. I mentioned there the famous commando knife but of course certainly in the world of SOE that wouldn't be uh, taking a particular role. Of course it's uh, something that would uh, could well compromise the SOE operative and so uh, they wouldn't be using uh, they wouldn't be taking something like that with them. There's an excellent British series they did a few years ago you'll probably find it on the net somewhere where they sort of got modern day people and they took them up for sort of candidate training up to Scotland. People from all different backgrounds that uh, volunteered to do it and so they went through and sort of kind of recreated the things uh, dressed them up as uh, you know back in the day uh, back in World War II and gave them as if they were an SOE person and that's a really good series and to see how they they cope under those situations it's a really good simulation and clearly it gives you a taste of uh, what really was required Fairburn and Sykes were remarkable in a number of ways. They would uh, often surprise candidates at, say, the country houses, um, tumbling downstairs and then writing themselves, holding a machine gun like a Sten gun and firing through the door. Their uh, athleticism was incredible. And you've got to put it in perspective. These guys are kind of middle-aged, really, uh, but they have the speed, poise, dexterity and agility of someone far, far younger. A clandestine approach to everything, you might be carrying a, a very small compass in the shape of a button on your clothes, maybe a map, very uh, very flimsy map uh, sewn into your clothing, that kind of thing that can be disposed of very easily once it's been used, all this sort of thing. So there's all these um, little idiosyncrasy things going on um, so that when these people are dropped behind uh, into occupied areas uh, they can just blend in, uh, they will have a change of identity of course, they'll have to learn to be the particular person. They might actually be going back as themselves. Who knows that uh, people don't really know that they've left, but uh, invariably it will be somebody going back in uh, under an assumed name, assumed uh, on a, you know different identity papers and all the rest of it. Most often than not, the Special Operations Executive would be reliant upon the resistance French resistance, uh, Norwegian resistance, which were incredibly brave and remarkable people in themselves. And actually, it seems to me that um, you know all war is terrible, but uh, to have um, an occupied to be occupied by another nation must be absolutely horrendous. You know, uh, just uh, sort of on a par with civil war, really. You know, it must be awful. And you've got your collaborators, of course which uh, in my eyes a collaboration against uh, against your your nation is is frankly despicable i just can't have the words to how i how i find that disgusting and abhorrent um but of course they were uh, obviously if you're under occupation you have to do as you're told to a certain point but to collaborate with them as some of the french did and some of the uh, the norwegians did is absolutely deplorable and uh, in my view downright disgraceful and disgusting. I know for a fact and this is a fact that a number of years ago now I was in Norway and I knew some people had a, a farm more, more moving towards the north and um, I knew some people uh, on another farm and this old lady once said to me she pointed to a farm over the way and said oh the Nazi farm and I thought what on earth is she on about and she was an elder very elderly lady 
but she was referring to the fact that the people who'd uh, inherited or had had that farm in their family history, because that's a common thing to do in Norway, had actually been um, collaborators with the um, with the uh, Germans and the, and the Nazis, and that's something that uh, uh, Norwegians never ever forget. And I learned that. Um, a lot of them were exiled to Australia and uh, was, that, was it Brazil? I don't know. I know Australia was definitely one that they sent a lot of them to. They were absolutely um, despicable. Um, I've, I just can't get my head around how somebody could possibly do that and do the bare minimum that you would do for, in collaboration. You'd have to if you wanted to survive, but at the same time I find it absolutely abhorrent. Um, and same with the French as well. So you see the problem is when, when the operatives get uh, Get, meet the resistance um, they've got to be doubly careful because you don't know who is an informer or who's a paid informer who's a collaborator and that's um, uh, that's often uh, their downfall isn't it sometimes so it's a very very precarious uh, precarious situation even uh, even at outset the only thing you can do is trust your contacts that's the only thing that you can do you just hope that your training will uh, facilitate you in what you're trying to achieve and uh, and go with it. So I'd like to uh, talk a little more on SOE weapons and equipment uh, after which I'll pick uh, out several of the special operations executives and tell you uh, tell you the stories or at least as much as I know. So small arms, I won't dwell too much on them, I'll just pick a couple of uh, interesting ones out. Of course uh, SOE will be trained with a semi-automatic pistol, of which uh, part of the training was what they call double tap, which is uh, when they uh, aim at the target with the pistol, making two shots, bang, bang. Um, and that was the way that they were trained. And also, and you'll see this on many films as well, is uh, the machine gun, the Sten gun. Now this, the Sten gun is uh, particularly interesting. The British machine gun, the uh, Sten gun in uh, nine millimeter. One of its uh, main advantages was uh, it's easily uh, stripped down into several pieces, which made it extremely easy to conceal. Uh, you press a button at the back and, uh, and then um, you can remove the stock and very easy get the front barrel off. Uh, so very, very simple design sort of blowback principle there's no crazy gas systems or anything like that it's just the bolt throws back as the as the round goes down from the chamber and then it uh, shoots back uh, with the spring I don't think they'll be probably concealing it that much but you know dropping it by parachuting containers or getting it from A to B I think that's the the idea with the Sten gun it was uh, uh, very useful the way it could be stripped down to to transport it from A to B it did have a number of disadvantages. Its downside was, um, unlike a more modern machine gun where you can kind of hold the barrel quite comfortably, this was quite difficult to hold the barrel um, with the way that the sights were, were made. And unless you were extremely confident just resting it on the hand, what people tended to do was hold the, uh, the option was to hold the magazine which um, can cause its other problems. The, the problem being that uh, it can facilitate stoppages because what you're doing is, uh, you know, you're, you're putting pressure on the magazine, which is uh, not really a good thing to do. The British Sten gun was used in uh, World War II and Korea. Very simple design, as I've said, and very low production costs, which was perfect for uh, insurgents and resistance groups. It was the basis, basically, for the, the SMG machine gun with better barrel and the folding stock which served the the British right up to the 1990s. They managed to get many to the French resistance and of course uh, some to the uh, Norwegian resistance as well. Now this next firearm is uh, well it's unbelievable really it's uh, really you know from the kind of James Bond era here. What we've got is um, designed specifically for SOE in mind is an uh, absolutely fascinating piece of kit here and I for one didn't know that uh, this thing uh, even existed it's called the well rod it's designed to be extremely quiet it's a long sort of cylindrical chamber simple not authentic design a large suppressor to reduce the noise when it's fired I guess it's like um, some kind of giant silencer that looks uh, looks like um, sort of 7 8 silencer and 1 8 gun. 32mm, 1.25 diameter and about 12 inches long, that's what, 
300 millimeters. Got a very small magazine uh, which slots underneath and doubles as the handle. And when you detach the magazine from it, it just looks like a small cylindrical pipe. It could take uh, either uh, six, nine millimeter rounds or uh, 132 ACP or eight, I think it is. And the, the bolt has to be cycled after each round. You sort of turn the end and pull it out at the back and then uh, lend it forward and then twist it into place again. Uh, no markings on it at all, of course, because it's designed specifically for uh, SOE. Probably got a maximum range of about 20 yards. I think they say 25, I think it's about 20 yards. But it's really designed to be used up close, you know, in front of somebody. Even uh, to the extent they've suggested, you know, probably at point blank range even. Because uh, if you put the, uh, the barrel into your... Um, target then uh, it's going to suppress the uh, the noise even further and they say that the noise is equivalent to sort of like an air gun going off. They made another one slightly later I think that they used the term the sleeve where um, it was just the barrel and basically it uh, you just uh, you you kept it up your sleeve and then you dropped it down and to fire um, to fire one single shot and then uh, uh, put it back up your sleeve of course there was no magazine at all with this so you just have one round uh, obviously uh, set up in the chamber. Designed, uh, they were designed from section 9 and section 9 of SOE was at a place called Welling and they used the W prefix uh, with a lot of different code words that particular section with a lot of gadgets they made. It really was the the sort of the kind of the James Bond Q style thing going on here at section 9 responsible for building all sorts of gadgets for uh, for spying uh, covert operatives and particularly for SOE and all that kind of stuff and Wellin is a place in London if you know the river or head east sort of past the tower and then where it does like a big sort of U and bends round Wellin's on the north side of that and just there's fairly near where today is uh, Canary Wharf, it's just up to the north of that. I think I said Section 9, um, I think I believe it's more called, known as Station 9. That was the, the terminology they used. The Special Operations Executive Equipment was certainly innovative, for sure. It had to be light, strong and to cope with being dropped from the air by parachute and also disguised so that uh, carried normally in everyday life it wouldn't draw attention. All developed at Station 9 the place at Wellin, next to uh, satellite factories. They made incredible things from uh, covert handguns, as I've just mentioned, to, would you believe, one-man submarines. Clothing for the uh, paradrops, nothing much really. A jumpsuit, felt-lined, camouflage front side, on the front side, large pockets which would carry a pistol easily, and two zips, full-length zips, around the length of the suit at each side for speed and to be able to discard it. They nicknamed it the, uh, would you believe, the, the striptease suit. Now back in the day when I did uh, a lot of free fall parachuting, I had a, a black jumpsuit with, um, it was great, it was, I had all maroon inside it and I had two full length zips from running one to the top and uh, I love the thing. And um, actually, very, very quick to get off. Well, it's clear that uh, the SOE uh, jumpsuits wasn't designed to look cool in any way but uh, I know the feeling when you kind of unzip uh, my jumpsuits and get out you, you certainly feel as if you're transforming one thing to another uh, like, like a coverall you know for for working um, in a factory or something. Obviously radios were vital Station 9 made smaller radios than were typical of the day uh, wireless to fit into say a, a small kind of briefcase attache case you know this kind of World War II sort of small box cases style of thing, brown boxes. Things were not uh, ideal but by 1942 they'd made kind of a, a radio to fit in a suitcase known as the B2. It had a receiver, a transmitter and everything but this one also had a power supply which was a real step forward because um, clearly to communicate long distance um, Morse code was used to uh, recoded messages out uh, at a particular time. It's a huge advantage with the having its own power whereas the other radios hadn't before 
because the Germans had discovered or found out that if they were listening to uh, a transmission, a coded transmission, and they suddenly switched the power off in a little village or area, small town or whatever, that then um, when the message stopped, they could sort of work out that uh, somebody was transmitting from that uh, kind of particular area. So this radio in the suitcase, the B2, gave you a, a, a distinct advantage. This next piece of kit, or oh, essential, I think, called the Eureka Rebecca, a shortwave radio beacon. Approximately the size of, well, you, they could fit it into a, a, a World War II biscuit tin, basically. So it's about, not too big, not too small. Basically, it's an early form of transponder. You've uh, filled, uh, you know, they have them in uh, commercial aircraft like airliners, and most aircraft carry them nowadays, which gives you position, obviously, by keeping the transponder on. Well, it's used for SOE and resistance groups, was to guide aircraft to a certain place on the ground, usually at night in a remote area, dropping supplies, ammunition, uh, sten guns perhaps, and landing and um, picking up agents like the uh, the Lysander aircraft, the smaller one, the one engine plane that was used for a lot of clandestine things and picking up agents of course on the ground and mainly used because of the short field takeoff and landing capabilities. It sent out a coded radio pulse, Eureka, which was the transponder on the ground. Rebecca was the receiver mounted on the aircraft which would determine distance and direction up to 20 miles. Obviously the pilot's uh, having to go on his navigation of his bearing and all the rest of it and try and work out his dead reckoning to get to, to get over the target area but uh, that's how it worked. They were strong, well made and as I said it could easily fit into a biscuit tin. SOE were really ingenious at concealment of items into everyday household goods and household things but I don't really want to get into a lot of that today. Um, you can look that up and, and do more research into that, but they really were quite ingenious. Just another note on explosives before I get into some of these fantastic uh, and unbelievable stories. Um, explosives, SOE, as you can imagine, had a wide range of usage for explosives. They obviously want to be blowing railway lines or, or blowing up things, whatever, whatever the sabotage is, isn't it? But um, they like to use plastic explosive, known as Nobles 808, I believe, similar to a clay, a coloured green, and it smelt of almonds. If it had to be set off by a detonator, and agents would use number 10 time pencils, which are brass tubes with a glass veal which uh, contained acid, and it was like a slow-release acid, eating away, and then the release, thereby igniting the main charge via a spring plunger. You could easily mould plastic explosive in things like lumps of coal. That particular idea of moulding them into lumps of coal, the idea being that it'd be put on the tender and when the train, the steam train's going and uh, they're shoving the, the coal into the firebox then bang! A huge explosion. Well apparently they never quite uh, managed to do that SOE in terms of that but um, it was so uh, the Germans found out about it and, they were so, and the drivers were so uh, scared of it and all the rest of it that a lot of them refused to drive and it did actually disrupt the war effort to uh, quite some degree apparently so just the threat of it, of doing that action was something that, uh, that worked to um, the resistance and the SOE advantage Right, I'm now going to look at some of these incredible heroes, heroines of the Special Operations Executive look at some of their stories. I've picked several out here but all, all their stories are gripping, noteworthy in some way and um, of course they're not all successful but the uh, SOE operatives were made of the strongest stuff imaginable and were incredibly, incredibly brave and in many cases they sacrificed their life and often tortured before death and they should never ever be forgotten. The first remarkable, incredible story is that of a female British spy. Uh, she faced torture and execution in the end. They made a film about her, starring Virginia McKenna, I think it was 1958, called Carve Her Name with Pride. And this lady's name was Violette Zabo. I think I've pronounced that right, S-Z-A-B-O. She was half French, 
my father was a British Army driver in World War One and married a French lady and by the time SOE came around she was a mother of one child and she did two missions over occupied France 22 years old when she first parachuted into France. Her mission was to help resistance and sabotage German operations and on her last mission Violet was captured after fighting uh, four squads, about 40 guys with NCOs and an officer, SS, crack SS soldiers with uh, 90 rounds of ammunition with uh, the Sten gun. The SS officer was so impressed he uh, complimented her on her fighting and placed a cigarette in her mouth. Uh, she'd also been wounded in the shoulder. She defiantly spat it out. She was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where shortly after a short while she was executed by a firing squad. Her young daughter Tanya was posthumously received the uh, George Cross by uh, then King George VI. When uh, Violet was 22, she was uh, 22 years old, she was uh, finishing up her SOE training. Um, she did actually sprain her ankle and I'll mention that later on actually. Um, but she was uh, it recovered enough for her to do the mission. But uh, I'll more of that slightly later. Uh, she was a very attractive lady and uh, she'd worked on the perfume counter in a London department store and at the time wanted to be an actress and in a way it, uh, it happened in a sort of different sort of way really didn't it by the wonderful actress Virginia McKenna who made a film about her in 1958 and who saw it as a great honour to play that role. This South London lady of working class origins had to pass herself off as a French secretary Corinne Leroy and the attention to detail was uh, quite incredible really the clothes, the perfume, cigarettes, the right down to the lingerie of which um, they had to smuggle in from France by the resistance to make sure that everything right down to the little tiniest little minuscule details were, were sorted leaving nothing to chance. It was her language skills that uh, were key here. She'd lived in France till the age of 12. She was born in uh, 1921 and came to England age 12 and she was the eldest uh, of um, six and uh, she had uh, five brothers. She was a tomboy, uh, very athletic. She'd been so attractive. Uh, she had uh, no problem attracting uh, the opposite sex, of course, and as World War II started, uh, her future husband, Etienne Zabo, who was actually French Foreign Legion. And Etienne was in London and uh, General de Gaulle was exiled in uh, London and they met and um, after uh, a short while, two months, they uh, have uh, been together, they married. Um, they had a daughter born in 1942. Well, sadly, uh, Etienne Zabo never got to see his daughter. He was away fighting in Egypt and uh, the Battle of El Alamein, he was killed. It was some time before Violette uh, heard about the, the news. Obviously, she's devastated. But when she got over all the grief, she wanted to avenge his death. It was the man she truly loved and uh, she'd do anything. And a chance came in July 1943. She got a letter from a Mr Potter, basically wanted her to attend an interview at the Ministry of Pensions. Well, she'd no idea what the chap wanted, other than the fact it perhaps something to do with her being a widow. But actually, Potter was a, a cover name for Selwyn Jepson, who was the recruiting officer for the Special Operations Executive. She was unaware her name had already been picked as a possible recruit uh, as an SOE operative. George Clement, who was a French-speaking chap who'd uh, met Violette a few times at dance halls. And she was highly motivated from outset and in her own words wanted more than anything to kill Germans. The cover story for all friends and family and family members, first aid and nursing yeomanry that she was uh, using, tell everybody she was a part of, ambulance driving, prison guard duty and all of, that, all of that stuff. And that gave her reasons for being away. Violette had to do all the, uh, all the training of SOE of course, including the parachuting and uh, living off the land and uh, silent killing. I'd just like to spend a minute or two talking about this. If, you're, if you have a weak disposition, it might be uh, better to uh, close off your ears for a minute or two, but um, anyway. I mentioned Fairburn and Sykes, if you recall, the styles of combat for commandos and all that, and sort of them, um, you know, being in the um, Far East and, and being in the police over there uh, with Fairburn and Sykes, the close quarter combat instructor. And uh, 
you know, they taught all sorts of uh, combat tactics, but also to be an assassin. And um, example, teaching a commando may come up behind a sentry, for example, grab his helmet or his head or his hair and drive a knife into the jugular vein at the side of the neck. And that should do it probably, but um, then the idea was to then pull and with a fist forward towards the mouth rather than just pull the knife out. It's a rather gruesome thing, but there we are. But in SOE, you know, in, in silent killing, the approach might well have been to come up behind a sentry, grab the helmet, grab the hair, grab the mouth or whatever and pull back. Push the knife into the lower back, into the sort of kidney areas or up into those organs there. But the shock of the knife going in as you pull back induces cardiac arrest. And uh, that can be a very uh, efficient way of a takedown and, um, and silence the, uh, the sentry. Um, another SOE assassin idea, target, sit on a bench, walk past and basically just drive the knife into the heart, straight at the heart, leave the knife in and just simply carry on walking. Or on a set of stairs there's somebody in front of you, walking in front of you and you pull the head back and then but drive the knife in into the chest area, into the heart area at the front as you pull the head back. They're obviously lower than you or if somebody's walking past you just walking towards you, you simply just thrust the knife into the heart area, leave the knife in and then just simply carry on walking and that's how it's done. Probably if it's in a more congested area, I don't know, but that's uh, one of the tactics that, they, that uh, Fairburn and, and Sykes taught. There's many, many more. This is just a, a few that, uh, to, to give you an idea. There are also a series of techniques that I haven't got time to go through here by simply using bare hands. But uh, you can imagine if you've done martial arts as I have or whatever, you will be aware of uh, some of those uh, ideas. Now the last phase of SOE training is parachute training. And during the parachute training, uh, Violette uh, sprained an ankle. And you know, ankles take a long time to heal when they're sprained, don't they? If you use them, if you go using them again, not too soon. But um, she recovered enough to say that she was operational, she was fit to go. And I think it was the 5th of April 44. she was um, parachuted into northwest France with the idea to join a, a resistance network codenamed Salesman. And it was uh, an organisation of resistance doing power stations and blowing um, factories, that kind of thing, and doing more sabotage work. As some of this uh, resistance network's uh, leaders had been uh, captured or killed. Being a good-looking woman, she was getting... Uh, attention from a particular German officer who asked her out to lunch and one thing and another. Uh, she managed to avoid it and uh, not take up his offers. And if he only knew that she'd recently, uh, <laughs> she blew up a rail viaduct and she'd also been passing on information on the V1 and V2 flying bomb. So she's, uh, she'd been very busy. After four weeks undercover, she caught a train to Paris and very, very late at night in the early hours was flown out but by June the 8th, two days after D-Day, she was back in France to help coordinate resistance. And less than 48 hours later, traveling in a car with a 21-year-old resistance fighter, Jacques Dufour, whose codename was Anastas, came towards the German makeshift checkpoint. Excuse me. If they were searched, they were carrying Sten guns and uh, they'd be discovered. And so what they had to do, they decided to uh, go for a shootout. She got shot in the shoulder during the, uh, the shootout and they were running across a field at one stage. So the unthinkable happens when they're going across the field. Her ankle gave way. She told him to keep going and basically held them all off until she eventually ran out of ammo. As I mentioned earlier, what happened? And Anastas, well, he got away and basically she saved his life. Now, uh, older musician artists like me, we have a saying for people who uh, perhaps have struggled with financially or whatever, we use a term as a, as a musical artist, they're down on their luck. We never judge people by financial means at all. We look at their inner character and what their skills and their abilities are and what they're like as a person. The reason I mention this is because Tanya, Violet's daughter, late in life had to auction the George Cross medal uh, because she was, uh, because of financial circumstances. You know, basically, She's just down on her luck, you know? And uh, what's interesting is that Gina McKenna uh, shows up. Uh, she shows up to um, 
facilitate the sailor auction which shows just how much respect she had for this extraordinary lady Violette Sabo who um, sacrifices her life in order that uh, people like you and I enjoy the freedoms that we do today. Now I'm just going to briefly look at a few more. Yvonne uh, Comer, wireless operator, parachuted into France 1943. She has a record of 400 transmissions in 13 months. Incredible. Yvonne's husband was killed in London Air Raid in 1940. Amazingly with another agent, George Still, in France, they had guns pushed into their bodies and she explained away a radio set as it, she, she convinced them that it was a, an x-ray machine. How incredible is that? Now I mean, I've spared the listener here the types of torture that the Nazis employed. I really don't want to go into too much here. If you can imagine, if you go back to Tudor, Tudor England around the sort of 1530s, early 1540s, and you've had the uh, Northern Uprising after the uh, monasteries are all burnt down, and uh, you know the Papists, the Reformists, and all the rest of it. Well, they had the they had the rack in the Tower of London where they would, if people were going to talk, they were going to stretch them out and pull all the limbs until they're all coming off, uh, that kind of thing. And um, they had those huge, great big stones that crushed people, just slowly crushed them bit by bit. You know, they were just a, a couple of the uh, ideas in, the, in Tudor England. Well, the reason I mention that is because we, we fast forward from sort of Tudor England, and incidentally, um, digressing now, aren't I? 100 years before Wars of the Roses, Richard of York did have a point with uh, Henry VIII's grandfather, I believe. That's another story, I'm digressing. <laughs> uh, let's get back to it. So, you know, we, we push forward to uh, the Nazis in the Second World War, their forms of torture were absolutely horrific, on a par, probably worse even in some ways, I think, than in Tudor England. And Tudor England was supposed to be getting better, wasn't it? We don't seem to learn things as, the, as time goes on. Probably one of the things they did do, they would uh, pull all the, all the toenails out of people, all that sort of stuff. They've got to keep them uh, conscious, of course, and that's what they do. And then there's a lot more horrific things, sexual violations on the women, um, all sorts of things and I don't really want to go into any more of it but it's absolutely horrific and the thing is these SOE agents they know what they are going into that's the incredible thing they understand and this is where their unbelievable bravery comes in now Yvonne uh, transmitting from a remote village uh, there's no running water and she's there for six months and uh, supposed to keep uh, on the move with as a radio operator so you don't get detection but uh, the Germans became aware there was a female operator somewhere. They'd learnt that much. But she never got caught because the Germans could not believe that someone could possibly, particularly a lady, a woman, that couldn't possibly survive in those conditions for so long. That's why she was so successful. Ben Coburn amazingly completed four missions as a, secret op uh, a special operations executive agent. Longest period in France of anyone else most notably blew up six railway engines at uh, Troyes, liked to make life difficult for others, and he even managed to get a consignment of uh, itching powder and shoved it in the laundry and sprinkled it all over German uniforms. I like that one. That's good, yeah, I like that. Alfred and Henry Newton, these were two brothers, parachuted into France in 1942 to advise sabotage operations. Their motivations? They've got good motivation, these guys. Well, they lost the parents, they lost the wives, and they've lost the children to the war. They were all drowned in the ship when it was hit by a torpedo. Well, they were captured in 1943, tortured, interrogated, and eventually being sent to Buchenwald um, concentration camp. Uh, the camp was liberated in April 1945. Harry Ree, his codename Cesar, joined SOE in 1940. He became a captain, serving in the Intelligence Corps, dropped into France 1943. And it was uh, basically, he was uh, sort of the opinion, put pressure on that uh, the bombing of France was not a good idea, it uh, wouldn't be uh, productive at all, and he uh, advocated the fact that uh, they should do sabotage and that sort of things. And he himself successfully blew up the Peugeot factory at, uh, at uh, Sachur 
I think that's how they pronounce it. Um, later, he was um, shot four times and he still managed to swim across a river, got himself through a forest and then eventually back to England via Switzerland. That, uh, that's quite amazing. You may have heard of the Heroes of Telemark. They uh, made a film of it with Kirk Douglas in it. Well, it's not a brilliant film actually, but uh, the story's fantastic. It's the heavy water plant in Telemark, Norway. Um, SOE agents, Norwegian, and uh, help the Norwegian resistance, uh, but Norwegian agents, special operation executives. And I'm going to do a separate pod on the whole thing here because it's an entire story in itself. It's quite incredible. I like that word incredible. I seem to use it a bit often, but uh, uh, it's not, uh, not without foundation here. So I'm probably going to do a whole thing on that, but, uh, and probably how I almost had the opportunity to, uh, or did have an opportunity to meet one of them back in the early 2000s. So I've given you just a taste of, uh, there's a few of the uh, SOE agents, many more of course, with stories of bravery, a lot meeting a tragic end, others surviving, but all of them uh, successful in one way in uh, creating a huge contribution to the Allies winning World War II. All the special operations executives were fully aware of the risks and the department made no bones about it um, you know, to get back and survive, the uh, statistics were about 50%, which uh, not really too good odds, is it? But uh, they knew what they were getting themselves into. Like all war, there are many unsung heroes. And uh, with the special operations executive, with their nerves of steel and bravery, they really were a breed apart. As I said before, that's just a fraction. I've given you a few of them here. There are many, many more. You can look them up and research them with some fantastic stories. I admire every single one of them. SOE was officially disbanded on the 15th of January 1946. Okay, that's it. I'm out of here. Don't forget to check other episodes. Uh, check my Harp of the Healer on YouTube. My harmonica sites and everything. Thumbs up and follow that. And um, let me just leave you with this, that perhaps just now and again uh, spare a thought for the uh, Special Operations Executive, as I said a breed apart, who played such a vital role in World War II and helped give us all the freedoms we share today. Mm -hmm.